1973, gasoline cost 39 cents per gallon. The Miami Dolphins won Super Bowl VII to complete the only perfect season in NFL history, and William Freakin's The Exorcist debuted in theaters. In Arkansas, three species of carp were imported from Asia because of their special qualities that could help improve water quality in aquaculture ponds and sewage treatment lagoons. The big head, black, and silver carp joined the grass carp, which had historically been used to fight nuisance vegetation in U.S. ponds and lakes. Time passed and fish escaped. In the ensuing years, all four invasive carp species were found in U.S. waterways, including the nation's most significant watershed, the Mississippi River, and their populations have expanded rapidly. One study in the early 2000s estimated a section of the Illinois River contained about 4,000 silver carp per river mile, with a biomass of about 19,000 pounds per river mile. Concern grew because of the invasive carp's ability to outcompete native aquatic life significantly disrupting ecosystems. As the fish expanded to the upper reaches of the Mississippi River, a new objective gained increased urgency, blocking these carp from entering the Great Lakes where they could significantly disrupt a $7 billion fishing industry. Adding to the hazard, silver carp can grow as large as 80 pounds and can jump as high as nine feet out of the water when startled by boat engines, presenting a significant risk for anglers, boaters, and others. The fight to keep invasive carp out of the Great Lakes has been closely watched by governors, Congress, and even the White House. There is one navigable link between the Mississippi River and the Great Lakes, the Chicago Area Waterway System. This network of canals and locks includes the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal, which was completed in 1900. Together, they provide flood control and also play a significant role in commercial and regional navigation. The canals have gained much attention as a potential route for carp to enter the Great Lakes. Guided by Erdic research, a series of electric barriers were placed along the Chicago Ship Canal beginning in 2001. Erdic continues to study additional methods to prevent carp passage, including the use of sound or carbon dioxide bubbles. Some of these will be used in a new layered control system to be constructed at Brandon Road Lock and Dam, a key entry point near the beginning of the canal. Erdic's research on this topic is part of a greater effort to protect endangered species in our nation's waterways and manage invasive species in our fisheries. I'm Megan Holland, and with Chris Kiefer, this is The Power of Erdic. Our guest today is Alan Katzenmeyer, the chief of the Aquatic Ecology and Invasive Species Branch at Erdic's Environmental Laboratory. We will talk with Alan about how Erdic is discovering innovative ways to manage invasive fisheries and protect our nation's freshwater ecosystems. Alan, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm looking forward to this one. Alan, we talked in the opening about how your work involves both conserving endangered species and controlling invasive ones. And I, I know that kind of sounds like two different focus areas, but people may not realize they really go hand in hand. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Invasive species, also known as non-indigenous species, are organisms that have simply just been introduced into a habitat outside of their area. Um, they compete directly with native species for resources, such as food. Um, whenever you have invasive species introduced, they actually really cause a, a lot of economic damage. Um, currently in the U.S., they forecast about $138 billion annually in economic impact. Wow. You can think of cases like wild hogs, where they compete 
and they eat our corn crops. Then you can look at loss of recreational fishing, which you don't think of as a direct economic impact, but for the local communities that rely on those reservoirs, for anglers to come in, it's a huge impact. Mm-hmm. You also look at threats such as having water hyacinth floating in your navigation channel where you can no longer access it with a boat. So it denies recreational opportunities and impedes navigation for the Corps of Engineers. That's interesting. So, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, one of the goals is to conserve endangered species, protect endangered species. One of the strategies for doing so is... Uh, managing invasive species because that's one of the biggest threats. Absolutely. So we're always concerned about biodiversity and biodiversity is kind of a mark of resiliency in a system. Invasive species have impaired the recovery of 42% of our listed threatened and endangered species. And then on top of that, one third of our nation's freshwater fish species are considered threatened and endangered already. And 72% of our nation's mussels are considered imperiled. Wow. So so that's where like when you mentioned the mussels, what is it? The black carp, I think, specifically targets mussels. And so that's why it's such Absolutely. a threat. Absolutely. It's a molluscivore. Um, and the black carp were actually one of the accidentally introduced aquatic invasive species. They actually came in on a shipment of grass carp. They weren't intentionally brought into the U.S. And they were later introduced into the lower Mississippi River and have since spread. We found them at the Bonnie Carey Spillway, and we believe they're moving north. The problem with species such as black carp, they're extremely hard to capture. We don't have as many commercial fishermen. So we literally don't have as many people on the water targeting these invasives. And one other point, I just, you know, as you kind of talk about that, that we were talking about a little bit off the air is, you know, where invasive species come from. I mean, in the case of the black carp accidentally got in the shipment, sometimes people have an exotic pet uh, and then they don't care for the pet anymore and it gets, gets into the ecosystem. So you have ornamental species trade where you have purposely brought in fish that may have some unique characteristic that people like or unique water hyacinth where it has this beautiful floating purple flower during certain points of the year. And then you have a flood event or you have a case where someone has to move and they can't get rid of their fish so they release it into the local water body. And then you have an introduced population. Now, that's the introduction phase. You have to also look at the establishment. Is You have to have multiple fish in order to have a population, and that may take a decade or two decades to actually form to the point that they can begin to spread. Mm-hmm. And that's whenever you have an invasive species, whenever it gets to that area or to that stretch. So it's not hard to understand why this is a problem, but it might be hard for some people to understand why the Corps of Engineers is involved <clears throat> in managing endangered and invasive species. Can you talk about that a little bit? So if you think about the scale of what the Corps of Engineers does, there's 67% of the goods consumed by Americans and half of the oil imports that we have move through a USACE managed harbor. On top of that, we have 12,000 miles of navigation channel with over 600 dams and 250 navigation locks. I get to be part of a team that gets to be the steward of 12 million acres of land in the United States. The infrastructure that we've really created to connect the nation has also created this perfect pathway for the spread of invasive species. And the, one of the core's environmental missions is being a good steward of the land that we're, in, we're entrusted to protect. Furthermore, we're, we're like the number one provider right now for outdoor recreation in the United States. We had 368 million visits annually to all of our over 4,400 field sites and project offices. Think about all the 350-plus major reservoirs that we maintain, all the recreation, and the economic impact that those reservoirs and all the water bodies that we host people on. Um, that's, a, that's really important um, for your local economy. If you think about a reservoir, 
with Big Head Carp or Silver Carp, they can comprise 97% of the biomass inside of that system. All of a sudden, you're not going to have sport fish. And if people aren't catching fish, they're not going to come back to the reservoir. So it's devastating for the local economy when that occurs. And we talked about earlier with biodiversity. When you have a resilient community, especially with endangered animals, one single event is far less likely to have an impact on the total population of that species, which is really critical when we dredge, when we have large-scale construction to protect the endangered species in that area. Sure, sure. So the efforts to stop the spread of invasive carp on the Great Lakes uh, have been particularly high profile. Can you talk about why there's so much interest, you know, specifically focused on carp, and some of the research that Erdig is doing in that area? We're the leading research group right now for electric barriers in the Chicago area waterway system. We really have optimized the system effectiveness over a wide range of environmental conditions. That's one of the most critical aspects. The original barrier was never built to stop big head and silver carp. So we were tasked by the Chicago district to actually understand how that electrical barrier can be modified to stop the spread of aquatic invasive and, and species. Just, just to back up for the for people to understand, so it, was, it was built for a different kind of fish. I'm it assuming. was built to prevent the round goby from in, coming into the United States. And then y'all modified it. Absolutely. For the carp. Yeah, so sure. we're preventing upstream movement of carp. Um, what we're really concerned, there's a $7 billion fisheries focusing around primarily walleye, yellow perch, and a few other smaller species that supports both commercial and recreational fishing. That's a $7 billion impact or potential impact due to carp being introduced. We talk about a lot of biomass. Um, if you think about like Michigan and Huron, we're expected if the carp get in, maybe a 2% increase in total biomass in that system. It's substantial, but not catastrophic. Or some models say it is, some say it's not. There's a lot of debate in that mm -hmm. right now. But if you look at Lake Erie and Saginaw Bay, you're looking at up to a 25% change in biomass in that system, which would be very devastating or has the potential to be devastating to that local ecosystem. So we're really working to prevent that. What is it about carp that makes them particularly disruptive, particularly worrisome? So for big head carp and silver carp, they're incredibly efficient filter feeders. They're actually, there's a strange irony going on that in China and other countries, they're a prized food fish. They're absolutely considered a delicacy, especially mm -hmm. these large carp. That would be like a Christmas turkey for us whenever okay. we catch a 40-pound carp. Unfortunately, the U.S. palate does not eat carp. Um, there's a bad connotation with it. They're harvested right now about 3.3 million tons per year in aquaculture industry in China, whereas in the United States, they're used typically for low-end protein sources or okay. organic gardening. Huh. Yeah, uh, that, that's a big problem. The diet of these fish overlaps heavily with other planktivorous species, meaning fish that just filter out the phytoplankton and zooplankton. The, the other issue is big head carp are thought to really deplete the stocks of phytoplankton and zooplankton for larval fish, which means they have a massive disruption in the food web. Mm -hmm. So what they're f eating is the base of what everything else eats, and that causes a cascading effect across the ecosystem. Um, female big head carps are excellent at reproducing. So a single female can become reproductive between two and three years old and can bear up to 1.1 million eggs. A unique fact about the carp, especially in their native river system, the mirror, is they actually have to remain the eggs in suspension in the water column for 40 to 60 hours. So we're looking at, can we modify the hydraulic flow of the river to actually get the eggs to drop out during certain points of the year? 
Um, and carp spawn during the annual flood event, which really compounds some of the challenges we face. I, I think we've also all seen, probably all seen, the videos of fish jumping out of the water and hitting people on boats or water skiers or people who are wakeboarding. Is, is that part of this as well? Yes, that's silver carp. So silver carp, or their technical name is Hypophthalmichthys molitrix. Big head carp or Hypophthalmichthys nobilis. So they're sister species. So for every one silver carp you see jump, there could be dozens of big head carp underwater that you don't see jump in that one moment. Hmm. And, and that really denies recreational opportunities. If you think of a reservoir, you don't want to pull your little child behind a boat with a silver carp that Absolutely. can weigh 20 to 40 pounds yeah. and hit them. Wow. You don't want to be on a jet ski and you don't want to be on a boat where at any moment you could have 10 to 20 carp jumping onto your nice boat and just completely ruining your day. So how can carp be stopped? That, I wish I could answer that question, quickly. Right? Yes, uh, invasive carp and just generally invasive species rely on introduction, establishment, and spread. The most cost-effective way we could control carp is prevent their introduction. Right now, we have not had a lot of success once a species is well-established in the country to actually prevent its movement and to mm -hmm. stop it completely or eradicate the species. So we move to control. And that's what the Corps is really working towards right now is to controlling where these animals are moving further. Now, we have had a few success stories where the snakehead in a part of Arkansas Bayou, um, they were able to go in and treat the entire system and kill everything to prevent the snakehead from actually moving out into the river system. Okay. But that really was dependent on early detection of that invasive fish and immediate eradication of the entire area. Tell us about the research Erdick did that led to the electric barriers in the Chicago Sanitarian Ship Canal. Sure. Um, originally, there was a demonstration barrier in 2002. Two more barriers, uh, 2A and 2B, became operational in 2009 and 2011, respectively. Uh, the core is really great in names. So we have Barrier 1 North. It just became operational in 2021. And Barrier 1 South is about to be completed. It will begin operation in 2023. Each barrier has taken lessons from the previous barriers that we've built to become more effective and more cost effective. If you think, a lot of people think electric barrier, they don't think of the million dollar electric bill that goes behind an electric barrier yeah. or however much it costs per month to run. The foundation for all of that research was actually hosted here at Erdig, and it's really exciting to see lab data and lab projects move to field operation scale. Electrical dispersal barriers are really used to stop upstream passage. We looked at using them to stop around gobies. The problem is when you stun a fish, it loses capacity, so if you're downstream current, then the fish just floats past. So they're only effective really for some of the upstream and for corralling the fish. Electrical barriers are are really unique in the fact that they have to work 100% of the time. They have to have a 100% stop rate. Mm -hmm. So you have to account the biological fact, the fish size, the fish species, swimming speed, ecological, and motivation to move upstream. You have to look at the environmental conditions. So what happens if the water depth changes? What happens if you have a higher water velocity, a different water conductivity, and the water temperature? So we had to take all of those individual wow. variables and make one master algorithm and turn that into an operation guide for how they can actually run those barriers. And so it was, it was really unique that it combined all these different things. And the, the complexity of the math behind it was just truly astronomical. But thankfully at Erdic, 
we have people that specialize in that. Yeah. We have individuals that that's not considered an intimidating process. So my brain automatically thinks that water and electricity don't go together. Can you talk a little, how does this work? How, how do you have an electric barrier that's underwater? Sure. So you have a pretty much cathode anode um, and it's pulsing DC across the water. Now, we work very closely with the U.S. Coast Guard to make sure it's not hazardous to human health. The one thing you don't want to do is see a bunch of arcs on a barge full of oil moving upstream. So we have to be very careful in the human factor behind this because you also have recreational boaters in the system. Um, That's part of the operating principle, that we have to know what a lethal dose to a person with electricity is and make sure we never exceed that. Mm -hmm. And then we work extensively with the Invasive Cart Regional Coordinating Committee to monitor environmental conditions, to make sure the barrier is working, to sample above and below the barrier using various modalities, such as environmental DNA testing and then traditional gill netting and electroshocking to make sure we don't have passage. We're also looking at telemetry studies where we put a small tag inside the animal and then put monitoring stations to see where that animal moves to see if we actually have an impact on where big head carp are going with that electrical barrier. Huh. So boats can still pass through the barrier. Yes. So one of the navigation missions of the Corps is we still have to maintain that channel. At one point, there was a brief discussion about closing the Chicago area waterway system, and it was going to have about an $18 billion price tag. So it's more cost-effective for us to use electrical barriers than to create a geographic isolation. This CARP research is one among many efforts within the Aquatic Ecology and Invasive Species branch. Give us just a basic overview of some of the other work that's going on out there. I really have the privilege to work with just an amazing team. Um, We have about 23 federal employees, nine ORISE students, which just consider it individuals that recently graduated school. They get to come on with us and do the equivalent of a postdoc, per se, with us for a year. Inside of my branch, we have two different teams. We have the fish and invertebrate ecology team where they study threatened and endangered sturgeon and paddlefish. They do a lot with invasive species management, such as big head and silver mm-hmm. carp. Swimming performance, which sounds incredibly boring, but <laughs> it's actually very interesting to see how well a fish swims. Okay. A lot of people don't think one of the most critical things for dispersal and upstream movement of fish is their ability to swim. We don't want to design a channel that is so fast that we actually prevent upstream migration of fish. Sure. And so that's one of the things they do on that team. It's really, if you want to filter out who really wants to work on the team, make them watch a fish swim for <laughs> 200 minutes and just see what happens. It, it can be quite boring, but the data is absolutely critical. Yeah, yeah. And for a lot of our modeling efforts, you have to have data like that. You can't do a computational model without raw collected data to better understand how that fish is interacting with the environment. We do a lot of habitat assessments, so one of the best parts of my job are the field days where we get to go out, we get to go sane, where we drag a net through the water, we run gill nets, we electroshock, and then we do kind of an inventory of every type of species in the system. We have some of the longest running data sets right now Hmm. of where pallid sturgeon are occupying and the densities that are in the lower Mississippi River in our secondary channels, and we also do telemetry tracking. And long-term ecosystem monitoring also, where we get to go in. And that's one of the really fun things that you get to be part of these teams that have 40, 50-year histories and continue the work that, they got, that they've continuously done. Yeah. Then the other team I have is the aquatic plant management team. Um, they focus on biological and herbicide control of aquatic plants. Aquatic plant management is one of the first invasive species management that we've had within the Corps. It started in 1899 where they were trying to clear water hyacinth out of some of the channels in Louisiana. 
So we have to make sure that we're not spraying a chemical that's going to kill all of your native species too. It kind of defeats the point if you yeah. kill everything in the system. Off-target herbicide movement. So when you spray, do we see any type of factor where fact of bioaccumulation or something where the fish or the plants are actually being eaten by another and it's causing some toxicity downstream of that? Um, terrestrial weed management. A lot of people don't think how many hundreds of millions of dollars are spent annually just spraying herbicides. So if we can refine how those herbicides are applied and when those herbicides are applied, it's a huge cost saving for mm -hmm. the core. Mm -hmm. um, insect mass rearing. So if we know there's a species that eats an invasive species, we can bring that species in and then rear it in the millions and actually use that native species to impact an invasive. And native and invasive species competition studies. So really basic ecology, understanding how natives and invasives are going to interact with each other. Talking more about invasive fisheries specifically, and we've talked a decent amount about carp. Tell us about some of the other work that you all are doing involving invasive fisheries. What's really fun about working at somewhere like Arctic is the breadth of research we get to do. Yeah. So we're all over the nation. We don't get to just work in a specific region. So in the last few years, I just pulled one of our fact sheets. We've worked on sea lamprey control where we actually design traps with different types of metals to see if it repels the sea lamprey or attracts them. And then we also look at how they swim, their swimming performance to determine if hydraulic barriers and trap placement is actually suitable for the fish species. So not just is the trap a really good design, but is the metal actually repelling the animal? Because some fish have a sensory organ called Ampulli of Lorenzini, and it's actually a metal detection per se, huh. electrosensitive organ. And what's really unique about that within sea lamprey is what happens if you build a trap that actually repels them because the metal um, really interrupts their nervous system. Huh. We're, we're looking at stable isotope analysis. So we're actually looking at where source waters are for these fish. So where these larval fish are born, it has a very unique water chemistry. So we're able to take the otolith, effectively the ear bone of the fish, and then use laser ablation to actually look at that water chemistry. And then we tie that back to a geographic region so we know where silver carp, big head carp, all these other species are actually breeding and where they're spawning and where the first few years of their life are. It's incredibly hard to track a larval fish, but using this new modern technology, we're able to get a better grasp of where these fish spend the first few years of their life. And that really ties into management. Yeah. Um, other projects, armored sucker mouth catfish are becoming a massive issue on the San Antonio River and throughout Florida. They're unique, and they actually burrow holes whenever they get ready to lay their eggs. The issue with that is they burrow them into the side of our levees. Mm -hmm. And then when we have a flood event, it could cause scouring and levee failure. So we're really interested in preventing their spread. Other fun projects we've worked on is partnering with the University of Mississippi, for determining the jumping angle of silver carp to better understand if we can get high head dams to work. Okay. Um, if we can create enough of a gap to prevent carp from jumping and moving upstream. It's very simple, but it's using existing structures that we already have. Yeah, And, and that's just a very brief overview. Right now, as of this morning, we have 17 active work units within the fisheries ecology team at Arctic. And those span throughout the nation. And that's not on top of our normal day-to-day -day consultations that we give to districts that have invasive species question. So it's really fun to be part of a team that has such an impact on a nationwide scale. What are some of the endangered species that you're working to protect? This week, we actually have a team down at the Old River Control Structure. 
Um, it's around St. Francisville, Louisiana. And the Old River Control Structure diverts 30% of the Mississippi River into the Atchafalaya Basin. They're actually tagging pallid sturgeon as we speak to see if those fish are going through the structure or how they're interacting with that structure as a whole. Um, that's one hmm. project where we're really interested in how core built structures are impacting our endangered species. And we want to do whatever we can to make sure that species is staying as healthy as possible mm -hmm. to prevent further regulation, which will impact our navigation mission. Gulf sturgeon restoration, um, this is led by Dr. Todd Slag. It's where we're actually sampling for Gulf sturgeon, putting in telemetry tags, and then monitoring where they go for three years. Gulf sturgeon are really unique. They're anadromous species, so they live in the ocean, but they make a migratory run inland to spawn. So we don't want to dredge while they're having that run. Sure. And so we're using that telemetry data to really inform when we can dredge and when we can't dredge. A big success story is not, I, I want him on my team, it's Matt Velazic, Dr. Matt Velazic. He is actually part of the coastal ecology team, and he's working on monitoring the interactions that Atlantic sturgeon have around dredges on the James River. It was really amazing that his research demonstrated that Atlantic sturgeon went right past the dredge. They never had any impact with the noise that the dredge created or the turbidity issues. They huh. moved right past it upstream. That was really critical for that district because they didn't have to stop the dredge, which sure. could cost a quarter million dollars just to move around. So we want to make sure we could dredge as long as we possibly can just to keep the navigation channel open, but we also don't want to impact the species. So if it was necessary for us to shut the dredge down sooner, that data would have informed us of that. Yeah, sure. It's all about balancing, balancing Absolutely. different missions, I guess. Absolutely. And we really had to look at it from the regulatory perspective that we want to make sure we are protecting these endangered species. And that, that's really our top priority. An example of that is the fat pocketbook mussel. Um, <laughs> no, that's a great name. <laughs> it's, uh, there's so many cool names. The yeah, mussels have some of the most unique names. Fat pocket mussels are really unique in that they have to parasitize freshwater drum in order to become a juvenile mussel. Wow. And what happened, the larvae actually attach to the gills of the fish. And freshwater drum have to have a flowing water source, such as that found behind Notch Dikes. They don't want to stay in the main line of the Mississippi okay. River. They want it in a secondary channel. If you think about a braided river where you have islands and then those small channels to the side of that yeah. island, that's what I'm referring to. So we partnered with the Lower Mississippi River Conservation Commission, along with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and multiple other agencies, to actually cut little holes in the dikes. We put in dikes to maintain the required draft needed to move barges up and down river. Mm -hmm. but we found if we cut this little bitty slit inside the dike, it creates a much better environment for the freshwater drum and wow. therefore benefits the fat pocketbook muscle because it gives more space more freshwater drum for that fat pocketbook to connect to effectively. Huh. Yeah. So it's really interesting from an ecosystem perspective that you can't just go for the endangered. You have to look at the whole community to make sure you're having the correct impact. And so part of our mission within the core is to preserve the environment and be good stewards. And that's something we're always concerned about is making sure we have the least amount of impact while maintaining navigation. It's really with our partnerships that we're able to do that. It's where we can work with the Fish and Wildlife Service and we proactively make things like the conservation plan for the least turn, the fat pocketbook muscle, and the pallid sturgeon, where we're looking not just now, but what do we want to see the river in 10, 20, 30 years? What, do, what can we do now to have that 30-year impact? Because for native species, 30 years is just a blip. 
Yeah. Um, an animal like the pallid sturgeon that may live up to 100 years, or the paddlefish, or the f- any number, um, smallmouth buffalo. There's, Another great they can name. live 100 plus years. And so what we're thinking in this five-year impact, what does that look like for the population in 100 years? Yeah, yeah, sure. And speaking about long period of time, and you've talked about it before, is it just Erdic's rich history, the Corps of Engineers' rich history in, in studying this? Can you talk a little bit about that history, Erdic's history, on studying both invasive fisheries and endangered species and kind of how it's evolved through the years? So originally we started with grass carp research in the 1980s under the Aquatic Plant Control Research Program biocontrol technology area. And, and to just back up on that, so why, like what, what led in the first place to, to Erdic sure. doing that work? Well, in how did 1963, I mean, 1963, the other agencies started bringing in grass carp as this miracle control. Mm-hmm. Until then, people were going out and having to mechanically remove or spray some type of herbicide to remove plants such as water hyacinth, which were blocking our navigation channels. Then we were able to bring in these fish, and magically these reservoirs were able to be cleared overnight mm-hmm. or over a several-month period with a reduction in cost. So we didn't have recurring costs of constantly spraying. The issue became they were supposed to be triploid, which means sterile. Mm-hmm. Not all of them were sterile, okay. we found out. And so it created a reproducing population in the lower Mississippi River. And we had to be concerned with how are they impacting our other species that are kind of dependent on the habitats that these grass carp are destroying. Yeah. And then in the 1990s, uh, we had a lot of work with the Santee Cooper on that river system making sure how grass carp were interacting. They weren't clearing out too much vegetation, things of that nature. In the end of the 1990s, grass carp research kind of diminished. Um, we found out everything we needed to know during that time period, mm-hmm. and we moved on to silver carp and big head carp because at that point they were becoming a bigger issue, and we started to realize they were everywhere. Yeah. Uh, we started to sample them in the Illinois River, moving all throughout the lower Mississippi River and the upper Mississippi River system. Our team received funding in about the mid-2000s from the Aquatic Nuisance Species Research Program to understand the basic biology, the physiology of the animal itself. Mm -hmm. How does this animal interact? Where does it go during the winter? How does it swim? How fast can it swim? How does it disperse? What's the... how? I mean, all these questions you have for some novel animal that 30 years ago, 40 years ago at that time didn't exist in the river. So how was it going to have that impact on the ecosystem itself? And then we created the sampling methods. We actually created how do you go out and sample for these fish in a standardized method. If everybody, every agency we work with samples in a different way, we can't compare our data. We're now expanding quite a bit into risk-based modeling. So being able to forecast, like I was talking about earlier, looking at 10, 20, 30-year trends how that's going to interrupt the ecosystem and what can we do now to have those long-term impacts and how native fauna will respond to various conditions. We're also very interested in climate change vulnerability assessments. Mm -hmm. How, if we have a slight sea level rise, if we have some type of large-scale flooding event, are we going to create freshwater bridges for animals to move in? So what happens if we flood the entire Gulf of Mexico Similar to what we did in 2011 when the Mississippi River was at its peak flood stage. Mm-hmm. Did that create a freshwater bridge to move aquatic invasive species into new river systems such as the Pearl River? And how yeah. can we operate our structures to prevent that? So that's a lot of our current research. Yeah. So you, like me, Alan, you grew up in Vicksburg and you have a unique personal history um, related to Arctic. You started working here as a student. Why did you choose to work at Erdic and what has kept you here all this time? 
I never had a chance to get bored. Oh, I mean, that's really unique. I started actually in 2004 with the U.S. First Robotics Program, and I owe so much to Chuck Dickerson for just getting me in the door, getting wow. me in, interested in this type of research. Robotics is very novel. And even before that, my dad was able to show me how electrical systems work. He was able to show me carpentry and everything to get me interested in getting to work with my hands and getting outside and seeing the environment. Yeah. And from there, I found there's careers. I mean, that was so exciting as someone that's a sophomore in high school thinking, do I really want to you know, work at a computer? Do I want to go do something else? And then I get to meet someone like Dr. Jan Hoover, who is just this very charismatic individual, to say the least. Just an amazing person to work with. And he's like, you can make this a career. You get to work with these highly endangered animals and you get to go swim them in a tank. And that was interesting to me at the time. (laughs) But it was just that basic getting out and seeing the environment and having an impact on the environment was really inspirational to me. And getting to see the, the breadth. I'm so fortunate to have spent the first part of my career getting to travel the country and seeing the impacts of invasives and seeing what we can do to actually restore endangered species habitat. It's, it's just been one of the most amazing journeys I could imagine that one week you get to work with sea lamprey. The next week we get to work with autonomous underwater vehicles to map habitat. The week after that, we're working on a completely new project right. set. So the breadth of research, the diversity that we have of researchers, just amazing people, just anyone you can imagine is a subject matter expert in something. So it's always fun to go to the cafeteria and there's someone who may be a subject matter expert in projectile physics. Well, we all of a sudden have a partner for understanding how silver carp jump based on projectile physics. Wow. And so those partnerships and those random connections you can make at somewhere like Arctic or astronomical. Yeah. And it's kept the job very interesting. I can't imagine sitting in an office every day and just doing the same task. And at Erdic, there is always something new to explore. There's always a new research field. We're on the cutting edge of science here. And so there's always a novel question that we're going to face. Yeah. And we talked about, again, the long history of this research. And and for you, who's kind of um, grown up at Erdic, you know, going back to, again, being, you know, around here as a high school student, now now you're leading a branch. I mean, what is that like to be kind of carrying on the work of, you mentioned Dr. Jan Hoover, you know, Jack Kilgore. I mean, just people that have, you know, this, this distinguished career. And that's what's really humbling about Erdic. Uh, I remember my first trip. Um, it was very deceptive. I think Dr. Kilgore got a real kick out of it. It was called Spring Bayou. I was like, oh, this is going to be a beautiful, you know, spring. It had 20 feet of sedimentation in the creek. So that means you could step in the creek and effectively sink all the way above your head. Wow. And I just loved it. I mean, where else do you get paid to go out and sample these imperiled creek systems and get to and go back and see, like, what can we do to improve that habitat? And, and Jan Hoover, it started with just taking care of fish. I've worked every possible job within the, the lab itself, yeah. from taking care of fish to just collecting the data for a study to running a study, and now I get to lead a team that runs multiple studies. Mm-hmm. So you just see this huge multiplication and the impact that you get to have and it really started with just someone like dr hoover that just had so much energy and such a passion for what he does um i just always think about that and i'm just so indebted to him for that work and just having someone like dr kilgore who was just such an expert at being calm 
um, riding through these storms, riding through like, hey, we're about to go into a meeting that could be hostile. It, it will pass. And just having so much confidence because he knows the data, he knows the science, he understands all the political avenues that we have to take to make sure we protect the environment. And getting to work under people like that has just really built, and they poured so much into me to make sure that when I could stand on my own, I really understood everything. And and it's never-ending. And when I say understand everything, it means that I know just enough to sound confident, but I will never be as smart as the guys I get to work with. Um, They are truly the subject matter experts. What makes Eric uniquely situated to do this research on invasive fisheries and endangered species? We own and operate all of this infrastructure for our nation. And we have to understand what impacts that's having. And it's great to work somewhere like Erdic, where I have a hydraulic engineer on on board. Effectively, at the drop of a hat, I can walk over to his office. We have invasive species biologists. Where else in the world do you have 22 ecologists and invasive species biologists working in one branch? And then the right next door, we have the like force projection group. And then the door next to that, we have river engineers. Mm-hmm. So it, it is very unique that we could tie all these disciplines in for very, what on the surface seem like very simple questions, but are incredibly difficult to answer. Who are some of the partners you're working with? Right now, we have more than we could possibly list. <laughs> um, it, it, that's a real strain is we can't look at the Mississippi River and say we can handle this on our own. Um, The Mississippi River is about 2,300 miles. Currently, we're passing, I want to say, 5.7 million gallons of water under the Vicksburg Bridge as we speak, and 5.7 million gallons per second. So when we talk about scale, we're talking enormous. Um, We're part of multiple groups, such as the Invasive Cart Regional Coordinating Committee that actually comprises over 20 state and federal agencies. That's one group that we work with. We have people from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that actually sit in our office. Um, We have very tight partnerships with those groups because we don't want to be reactive. We're very proactive as an organization in addressing those issues. And so we work closely with groups such as the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the USGS. If you look at the Dr. Crystal Woodley Lab and what they're doing out there, they're actually working on Brandon Roadblock and Dam right now. What's really exciting about that is it was just funded Yeah. Um, for some of the engineering and the initial construction. And Dr. Woodley's team is actually looking at how electrical barriers, how acoustic barriers, how bubble barriers are going to prevent that. That's not a partnership that only Erdic is doing. That's a partnership across the nation with the USGS, with all these other agencies and federal and state and all these different stakeholders you could possibly imagine. And a lot of non-government organizations. That's one thing exciting about fisheries is people are truly passionate about it. You talked about Brandon Road, Lock and Dam. I mean, that's a project where you're putting in, you've done electric barriers. That's a project where you're looking at new ways to manage invasive carp. Can you talk about that and and some of the other kind of what's next? So on the horizon, we're looking at multi-deterrent systems. That's going to become the main focus, especially at Brandon Road, Lock and Dam. Um, We're trying to understand how individuals react to every type of barrier. So right now we only have electrical barriers. What if we could reduce how much we're having to operate that barrier by 30%? That would be a huge maintenance reduction Mm -hmm. for us. So if we combine it with bubble barriers, which will disturb the fish and they'll move away, we combine it with acoustic barriers where we manipulate the physiology of the animal animal itself. They have a unique structure called the Weberian ossicles that are kind of like eardrums for Mm -hmm. us. If we can vibrate those the right way, it causes them to move away. It just disrupts them. It would be like a very annoying sound for us. 
So we're looking and combining all these physiological traits of the animal to prevent it from moving upstream. And that's really unique. Um, that, that work is ongoing. Um, it's exciting that it got funded this year through the Congress. And we're going to see some direct implementation. And we're, we're really looking forward to seeing where that goes. And on top of that, we're starting to explore, uh, like I talked about, climate change on range expansion. As it gets warmer uh, for longer periods of growth, we're going to have more invasives growing over longer periods. So some of our historical models wouldn't incorporate that. So we're starting mm -hmm. to see how that change in thermal regimes are really going to impact the spread of aquatic invasives and plant species. The USGS is actually currently working on a fluvial egg drift simulation to understand how the hydrodynamics of the river are keeping those eggs in the water column for 40 to 60 hours. After that, they hatch and they immediately move into these small, slow-moving systems of the river. Mm -hmm. So we're interested in how we can address that very early life stage to prevent a higher population from forming. Um, we're transitioning a lot of our lab research right now into operational guides. So it's really fun to see the baseline knowledge from just swimming a fish move into a large impact where the research is moving towards operating principles, where we need to operate these massive structures a different way to prevent upstream migration or movement of the fish. Wow. Lots to keep you busy with, but lots on the horizon. And, and I guess it's always about finding new ways to do it safer and better and, Absolutely. and, and make a greater impact. Appreciate your time and appreciate all the work you and your team are doing. Oh, thank you. Thank you guys for having me on today. Invasive species pose a significant threat to native fisheries, disrupting ecological balances, inflicting economic harm, and hampering recreational activities. Both silver carp and bighead carp, for instance, are filter feeders that consume much of the plankton that serve as the base for food chains. Black carp feed on mussels and snails and threaten endangered species of native mollusks. All three carp species have demonstrated rapid population growth, enabling them to outcompete native species and magnify their negative impact. Erdic is delivering safer and more effective methods to detect and manage carp and other invasive nuisance species and to limit their spread. This research will preserve aquatic ecosystems, protect endangered species, and provide key economic and social benefits. The Power of Arctic Podcast is a production of the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center. Follow Arctic on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest information. You can listen to the Power of Arctic Podcast in all major podcast players. Visit powerofarcticpodcast.org for more resources. You can also contact us at powerofarcticpodcast at usace.army.mil. That's all we have time for today, but we'll see you next time.